This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 183, and today I sat down with Mickey Agrawal, the founder of Tushy. Did you know over 15 million trees are cut down each year to supply Americans with toilet paper? Tushy is on a mission to change this with their sleek modern bidet that attaches to any standard toilet and offers a sustainable alternative to using toilet paper. In this episode, Mickey shares her story from growing up as an identical twin in Montreal, Canada, with a Japanese mother and an Indian father, to playing soccer professionally while working at Deutsche Bank, to starting the first gluten-free pizza company in New York City called Wild, to launching Thinks, the popular period-proof underwear brand, where she grew the brand to over $50 million in its first two years, to starting Tushy in 2016. She talks about how accidentally sleeping through her alarm clock for the first time in 2001 saved her life, how a hyperthyroid condition led her to come up with the idea for Tushy, and she lets us in on her top three ingredients for creating a successful brand. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Mickey. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building Tushy. How are you? Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Yeah, happy to be here. How are you? I'm good. I know you're getting ready to go to Burning Man and you're in Austin, Texas right now. Where did you grow up? Tell us about your childhood. What was it like as a kid? I grew up in Montreal, Canada to a Japanese mother and Indian father. Yeah, I grew up like speaking French as my first language. So I would, you know, I used to speak English like this with a French accent. So it was pretty cute. You know, growing up in a very, very multicultural town, a very multicultural environment, a very multicultural home, I think was so helpful in my development. Just, you know, went to French school Monday to Friday, Japanese school on Saturdays and Hindi school on Sundays. So I went to school seven days a week for my whole life. And we were deeply in the soccer world as well. I played soccer in college as well. But my dad was my coach, you know, my soccer coach growing up. My mom was the assistant coach. You know, my parents started the gifted children summer camp and just super involved parent. My mom was like one of the heads of the Japanese school. My dad was one of the heads of the Hindi school. And so I think we were tricked into believing that kids went to school seven days a week. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. Like we go to school seven days a week. Everyone must go to school seven days a week. So yeah, it turns out that it was a trick, but it was actually a great trick because now looking back, like being able to speak French, Japanese, Hindi, it's like, it's a real gift. You know, we're fluent in French, we're proficient in Japanese, and then I can read and write Hindi and like 
put me back in India for a couple of weeks and it'll all come back. But English is second language in India, but I can read and write, which is cool. Really cool. And so do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have an identical twin sister, Radha. She it lives in New York City now. We live together, I mean, in the same city for most of our life. But she still lives in New York. She started an early morning dance movement called Daybreaker. It's an early morning dance movement before work starts. And it's like a really, really cool, like they have 500,000 people that wake up and dance, you know, at one point every single month. And now they're on the, their 10-year tour. They've been running for 10 years. It's really, really epic. And my older sister, Yuri, she's 11 months older than us. So we're actually Irish triplets. She's a head and neck surgeon at Hopkins, but she just got a job as the chairwoman of the head and neck surgery department, ENT department of University of Denver. So they just, after 20 years, moved to Denver. She's like chairing in her ENT group, which is really, really cool. So Wow. Very ambitious family, I feel like. Where does that come from, do you think? I mean, you know, immigrants, you know, being first generation, both Indian, Japanese, I think, were raised like really being taught the importance of education and persevering and being relentless. And I think just our parents were just really amazing role models for if you see something that's not working, go do it. You know, my mom, like I said, she started the Gifted Children Summer Camp in Montreal, Canada. She's Japanese. Her English is quite, <laughs> she'll, she'll hate it when I say this, but her English isn't amazing. But she still figured out how to create a Gifted Children Summer Camp for kids. And it ran for years and years and years with hundreds of kids going through it. And, you know, they just said, like, if you see something that you don't like, you're somebody, you can go do it. They realized that electronics was the future in like the mid 80s. And so they started this company called Tomorrow's Professionals, which is this really cool electronics kits company that makes like transistors, resistors and breadboards. And you can put all this stuff together and make like burglar alarms and lights that switch it, like the lights that go off and you with a little switch and you learn about electronics. My dad wrote the manual. My mom drew all the pictures and made the packaging and and we, and they sold these kits all across Canada. And again, they had no experience in that. They just were like, oh, I think kids should learn about electronics. It's the future. And so they started this company out of their like basement. And they ran it for many, many years. And they sold these little kits, electronic kits to schools across Canada, which was really, really cool. That's awesome. So you have very entrepreneurial parents, it sounds like. And if you look back on your childhood... Was there any moment of you being entrepreneurial super early? Like what's one of the first maybe memories of being a creative problem solver or a leader or any of these kind of attributes of entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, we did science fair projects every year, you know, and starting in high school. We also put on my parents forced us <laughs> to make creative Christmas shows for them. Their audience come up with a whole show, like a variety show for our parents and we loved it. And so we just learned how to really be creative and kind of apply ourselves creatively in different areas. Cause it was like a variety show. So we had to do like different types of acts. And so it was just really fun. And I think our parents just exposed us to like, there's no limit to your creative potential. Even if you don't have to have money, you don't have to have resources, but you have creativity and that's available to you at all times. Yeah, I would say like we did tons of Christmas shows and shows and stuff like that as kids. And then we did science fair projects. So like, you know, we had to invent things. So Rod and I invented a digital slot machine. Like our older sister, Yuri, created like the, this fiber optic microimaging scanner thing that scans images and makes them like, you know, 10,000 times bigger or whatever. It was really revolutionary at the time. So yeah, they just kind of did stuff that... We were exposed to like the school did the science for projects. We just 
went all the way in, you know, or if we did anything, it was just like giving it your all. And I think that's also something that our parents taught us is like, if you do something, do it a hundred percent. Otherwise just don't do it. Like, what's the point that sort of translated across the board. If you're going to do something, do it a hundred percent all the way. Yeah. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were little, like what you kind of dreamed of becoming? Well, my dad's dream of mine was to become a doctor. And so that became my... <laughs> Don't you love you when know? parents have their dreams for their kids? <laughs> I know. It's so funny. And he's still like up to like, not even kidding, like three years ago or like five years ago, my dad was like, it's never too late to go back to medical school, you know? And he's still, I'm just like, all right, all right, cool, cool, cool. I think ultimately they just wanted us to be safe and have the best possible job that does the best possible thing. And at the time, you know, my... Indian Japanese parents were like, oh, doctor is the best, you know, otherwise, you know, like business is precarious. But, you know, doctor was the most prestigious, like well-paid, like consistent job that you knew that your kids would be okay. So I think that's where, you know, that came from. But my dad comes from a line of entrepreneurs and so does my mom. Like I went to Japan with my son and our whole entire family, my sisters, my parents, the kids, like we all went to Japan a few weeks ago or a few months ago for three weeks. And on the trip to Japan, we learned that my great grandfather actually lit up, basically started the Hokkaido Electric Company and actually was the one that created the entire electric power grid in all of Northern Japan. So he was an entrepreneur as well. And my grandfather, my mom's dad was the president of Mitsubishi. So super businessman as well. So like, and my dad, even if, you know, he came to America with $5 in his pocket, his whole family, they had a sari shop in town in Benares Indian store called the Agrawal Swadeshi store. I think if my dad didn't have three kids in one year and a wife, you know, to feed, then he probably would have taken more risks and become, become an entrepreneur. But he's an aeronautical engineer. He's developed like 35 patents himself during his tenure as an aeronautical engineer working for different different companies. So that's wild. I think it's really fun when you look into your ancestry. I have a lot of entrepreneurs in my ancestry as well. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's exactly why I am the way I am. You know, you're like, it's really my blood. It's unavoidable. It's in there. It's just part of my DNA, like literally part of my DNA. And it's funny to kind of realize that and it all feels like it comes together. At least it did for me. I was like, okay, now it's starting to make sense. Yeah, it's been like a really powerful thing to see that, like the epigenetics of that, you know, it's really cool. My mom's side is all samurais. My grandmother of my mom's side is all samurais. And so there's a sword too that I went to Japan to look for, but they couldn't find it. So we're still looking for the sword, the samurai sword. To bring that's back. crazy. That That's really cool. And so what were some of your first jobs and your college experience? Let's get into that. Yeah. I mean, my college experience was just soccer. Like I was a soccer player. And what I played position so did you play in soccer? I played right midfield at Cornell. I played striker when I was playing for the New York Magic after that. I played right midfield all four years at Cornell, which was really great because you got to really be an attacking forward, but also came back to defend. So it was really an endurance part of the field. You got, I got the whole corridor. So I had to go all the way up and all the way back. And so it was really fun. Did you play soccer as well? I did as a kid. I like stopped in high school. I realized I didn't do it enough to be competitive, you know, like all the I was a little like lanky, skinny girl in high school and all the soccer girls that had played forever were like, like I'm going to break my leg if I go and try out for this freshman team. Like there's well, so I'm like five one. I'm five one and a half. So I was always the tiniest person on the team always. But because of that, again, it's about the hard work and about like the most endurance. So it's always like one of the fastest and most endurance 
people on the team, despite my height and size, like, yeah, it's just about is that how much do you put in? You know, how I think much I realized want- I was too tall to be very fast. <laughs> I was like, I was this like, is going to be a challenge. Yeah. I'm going to go jump over the hurdles and do cross country. That's what they all tall, like skinny people are doing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing. So you did soccer in Cornell and then you graduated. What did you do out of school? After school, so I got a job in investment banking at Deutsche Bank. We like to refer to it as douche bank, just a joke. But no, I got a job at Deutsche Bank. My twin sister got a job at Sebi's World Markets, both investment banking analysts. And we we're both, I would call myself the worst investment banker, probably on the street, just because like, it was so cutthroat. And it was like, how many all nighters did you pull this week? I pulled three, my toothbrush and my jacket for the next days in my office closet. And you're just like, Jesus, like, why is that cool? Like, why do you think that's cool? So it was like, who can out hardcore each other by how much they were working? Like, I worked 100 hours this week. Oh, I worked 110 hours. It's just like, you look like sallow. <laughs> like, this is not the vibe. And so I actually then kind of figured out how to become best friends with the managing director of the bank, of my group. And so he basically eventually let me work next to him and he let me leave kind of when he left, which was really the other investment banker analysts like hated me because of that, which I didn't care because they were, I had nothing in common with them. And so it was just a really weird time for me because I was like learning so much about banking, finance, like just basic importance, like financial tools that have served me to this day, you know? And so on one hand, it's like fun to just begrudge the whole industry, but then to their credit, it really creates like excellent workers and really, really solid, you know, you understand the, how to like, read financials in a way that I didn't before. And so I owe a lot of that to that time. But what happened was I did the kind of two months analyst training program and then started my job on September 1st, 2001. So around that time. And my subway stop every single morning was to World Trade Center. And I would kind of get off at the subway stop and then meet my girlfriend at the World Trade Center cafe. We get a tea there and then I would walk across to my job and she would go to the hundredth floor. And then, you know, 9-11 happened, which was insane. And on that day, 700 people in her office died. The plane hit like right on her floor, which was insane. It was crazy. And I thought she was dead, but she had gone down right before to get coffee somehow, like, or forgot something and right before the plane hit. So I, for three weeks after, I really thought she was dead. And I was like freaking out because all the phone lines were down and no one could get in touch with anyone. And I had so many people who thought I was there. And it was like a crazy, crazy, crazy moment two people in my office died on that day too, which was like, and so many of my friends in my office had like these, or colleagues had like these stories of like sprinting underneath a car before all the shrapnel from the World Trade Center came down and could have killed them all. And it was just a wild, like imagine just going like, do, 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 like going to work one day and all of a sudden it's like Armageddon. And you're just like, this cannot be real life. Like this cannot be the way we're going down. I kind of had like some survivor's guilt. It was the first and only day in my life that I slept through my alarm clock. And to this day, I'm the lightest sleeper and any light sounds I wake up. And that was the only single day in my life that I slept through my alarm clock. And it was like this crazy 
angel moment where I just missed it all. I remember waking up and I was just like, oh shit. I was like late for work. And I was just like, oh my God. And I remember trying to call a car, like a car service at the time, there was no Ubers, but you can call a car service to like get you somewhere. So I was trying to call was taxis. We couldn't call one. So I was calling a car service. All the lines were busy and you're out of context. You're like, what's happening? Like, why are the lines busy? Like it's, I woke up, I don't even know how, like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I mean, I really missed it. And I never sleep through my alarm clock. It was truly a moment of like an angel or, I don't know. It was a moment. So I remember waking up that day and like dialing and dialing and, and finally picked up. And I was like, I need a car. And all he said was turn your TV on. And then he hung up on me. And I was like, what is like, you know, again, out of context, you're just like, turn your TV on. Like, what does that even mean? So I then turned my TV on and then I checked my phone and I had hundreds and hundreds of messages and missed calls and like people frantically looking for me. And I turned the TV on and just saw the smoking buildings right across my office. And I was just like, holy shit, like this is nuts. And so for the next couple of weeks, you know, everyone kind of scattered and we're home and, and then they opened like the banks we learned had disaster recovery sites way far away, like three hours away. So all of a sudden my commute became three hours each way to Piscataway, New Jersey, in the middle of nowhere, where these huge warehouses, like rows of tables and computers and phones were just there so you can conduct business. And you were sitting next to the partners and managing directors of the company. It was just a wild time. And, and then three weeks after, which is a crazy story that you know I don't share that often, but was a time when three weeks in, the towers were still smoking, but my building directly across the street was somewhat secured enough that the bank was sending in someone to retrieve all critical documents for the group. And I was the only one who volunteered to go in the building with a Marine. So I had to go through physical fitness tests, mass fitting class, asbestos training, like full, like GI Joe shit. And then, you know, I was like, I'm a wiry soccer player. Like I could do this. Like, I, again, I had some survivor skills. I want to go and help and do something that I could do. The day came when I met a Marine at base camp, like full on, like straight up, like military style stuff. And I went there and I had nine pages of lists of critical documents. I had to go into the building of Deutsche Bank and retrieve for my multi-billion dollar company, you know? And so like none of pressure, but it was wild. And so I went in with a flashlight, gas mask, moon suit goggles, and like with this Marine. And we like went through the mezzanine that was once gorgeous escalators and beautiful. It was like rubble. It was like out of like a bad, scary movie. And we went to the back entrance to this like scary elevator thing. Like that was rickety. And then like we went up each thing and I had huge garbage bags full of the critical documents. I would just be throwing shit in and we got everything and we escaped. When um, you were in there, were you like, what am I doing in here? Why did I do this? No, I was like grateful to have been given the opportunity. I mean, there was firemen and policemen who had done finger painting because there was this much soot on the walls of basically white soot from the papers and all the shit that got destroyed. So people were doing finger paints of like the towers and planes flying into them. And people like there's I mean, hundreds of people jumped to their deaths. Like imagine waking up one day with your, you know, going to work and then your entire building is burning and your entire floor. And it's like either you burn to death or you jump to your death. And like people were just jumping to their deaths. And it was just like, anyway, so there's these 
so much finger painting of people jumping to their death. And it's like, you can't imagine, like you just can't imagine. It's unimaginable what that experience was like. And so that was the moment where I was just like, wow, the mystery of life is that you never know when it's going to end. Like, and the time was right now to make every moment count. I'm going to do something that I really want to do. And I wrote down three things I want to do with my life. And the first was to play soccer professionally. The second was to make movies. And the third was to start a business. And, you know, there's a lot of naivete around doing the things that you wanted to do because you have to also like pay your bills and take care of your life and and deal with yourself. So I started to be like, okay, I'm going to start saving money. I opened up like an account that like automatically transferred like $500 a month, this account that just started accruing over time. And like, and just start to slowly, slowly build like, you know, I'd saved a little bit from working in investment banking and from the bonuses and stuff like that. And my sister and I really saved a shit ton from, we were also in tons of student loan debt too. So anyways, so then the investment bank at the time had moved to Midtown and we were all kind of crammed in Midtown location. And I basically found out the New York Magic were holding tryouts in Brooklyn. And I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to go for it. And these are like women from all D1 programs who were, you know, training every day. And I was working like 100 hours a week in the bank. I talk about all this in my book, Do Cool Shit, because it's about like, how do you build allyship and how do you get people to really stand behind your dreams? And I said, look, my dream is to be a professional soccer player. Everyone was like 9-11 shocked. So they were like, I'll, I'll hold your soccer bag behind here. If they weren't allowed to keep anything behind this front desk, they kept my soccer bag there. And then one of the car service guys, I befriended him. And I was like, my, and he was like from like the Middle East. And so he was super like loved soccer and the soccer is a huge thing in the Middle East. And so I befriended him and I was like, my dream is to be a professional soccer player. There's tryouts happening in Brooklyn. Would you take me there in the car and then take me back to the bank after the tryout's done so I can finish my job? And he said, absolutely. And so then I went to my managing director at the bank who became my dear friend after 9-11. I actually stayed with his family because Mike couldn't get to Brooklyn because the bridges were all cut off because people were afraid that the bridges would be terrorized by the terrorists as well. So I couldn't go home. And so I went to uh, Bill Landis's house and his family. Anyways, and so he played soccer in college. And so I went to him and I said, hey, my dream is to be a soccer player. Like, will you will you champion me? Like, and I try out for twice a week in the evening. So I'm not going to miss my work and I'll make sure my work all gets done. Like I promise I'll get it done. And he said, absolutely. So with his blessing, I basically would walk downstairs. All the other analysts were there like watching me leave twice a week early, you know, and they all hated me anyways, whatever. And so I basically would leave with this FedEx box under my arm, like pretending like I was going to FedEx. And then the I would kind of call downstairs. I was like, bring my bag to like the car service guy. And so the front desk guy, who was my friend, brought my my soccer bag to the car service guy outside who was waiting. And then he would drive one block. And then I would basically turn the corner of the FedEx box. And then I would like get in the car as fast as I could. He would like drive me to Brooklyn in the car. I'd be stretching and I'd be putting on my soccer stuff. And I would just be getting myself mentally prepared for the tryouts. And then this car service guy would wait for me and watch my tryouts and like my dad almost, you know, and then I would try out and then I would get back in the car, put my business outfit on and he would drive me back to the bank and I'd work till like 10 p.m., like 10 or 11 p.m. every night um, on the nights of my tryouts. And every single week that the coach Nino would put who was still on the list on the board and every week my name was just showing up there. And I was like, what? I'm still like, I'm still in. I'm still in. I'm still in. And on the very, very last day, he like announces the starting lineup. And I got announced on the starting lineup, which was such a huge, big deal. 
And I was like, about to quit my investment banking job. Just and I, but I was like, you know what? Let me just do my first game and just see how it goes. First game happens. I own a college stadium. Whistles blown. Like soccer, you know. Like I get past the ball, dribble past a couple of players, cross the ball, and the striker hits in the back of the net. Like first assist in the first like eight minutes of the game. But then like in that process, one of the defenders, the other team came and like slide tackled me. I heard the telltale snap and tore my ACL. Oh God, on the first game. On the first game after trying out for two and a half months and like doing that whole crazy thing that I had to do to make it happen. It was the universe just being like, how are you going to handle this? You know, what are you going to do now? So I basically stayed in the investment banking job for a year to get the very best health insurance and get the best surgeons and the best physical therapists and spent one year recovering and getting myself back to where I was and better. And then tried out again and made the team again and made a starting lineup again and then tore my other ACL. <laughs> Stop. Oh my gosh. The universe is just like, this is not for you. How, how many times do we got to tell you? Yeah. So it was a very, 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 very painful, painful, rude awakening. And the surgery was so fucking painful. And yeah, I've since had another ACL reconstruction on my way. So I had three total after movies and to quickly kind of get to the businesses. I worked on sets of commercials and music videos, picking up trash and getting director's coffee and driving directors around and doing that for a while. Then very quickly worked my way up to producing and line producing commercial music videos and then that's when I had my first business idea, which kind of came out of sitting out, just eating crappy food at one of the craft service tables at one of the sets of the commercials, which was, you know, free was my favorite price, you know, when you're still like working on paying off debts and all the things. So there was so much free food on the sets that I would just eat that, but it was like pizza and pigs in the blanket and like Smarties and like just chocolate full of five fructose corn syrup, just crap. And I would just come home with stomach aches like every single day. And I was just like, and this is when, by the way, Subway sandwich was like the healthy game in town, you know? And so and they're like, oh yeah, Subway is like the healthy food. And you're just like, Jesus, you know? So there was no real whole foods. There was, but it was like still like crunchy granola, Birkenstock wearing, smelly armpity, like hairy people would go to, you know what I mean? Like whatever, like that was like the thought of what health food stores were at the time. Oh, it probably tastes like cardboard, like, you know? And so- I kind of went home one day with a horrible stomachache and just researched it and discovered like the massive processed food industry and like the hormones, antibiotics, pesticides, you know, preservatives and all the crap that was in food that was causing people to have intolerances. And then I thought about my favorite food that I had to give up, which was pizza. Every time I ate pizza, I had huge bloating and gas and horrible feelings. And I basically researched it and I was like, wow, pizza is a $32 billion industry. You know, Americans eat a hundred acres of pizza every single day. There's a huge opportunity here to like take this beloved comfort food and turn on its head and use gluten-free flours and hormone-free cheeses and local seasonal toppings, et cetera. And just, yeah, just started really getting into the idea of creating New York City's first alternative pizza concept. And it was a wild ride at 24, 25. And then you know, trying to raise money when I've never raised dollar in my life and like trying to figure out how to do that was such a hilarious story in and of itself. I, I tell all those stories in my book, Do Cool Shit, um, about how I just came up with the idea. What do you do once you have your idea? Like, what are the steps to take? Like, okay, then you have the idea. Now you have the steps. Now you have the concept. Now what? Like, okay, how do you raise money? How do you get buy-in? How do you get people to work with you? How do you 
all those things I figured kind of out in a very <laughs> funny way. And that was, that's all in my book, Do Cool Shit. And Do Cool Shit now has helped like over, over 100,000 people quit their jobs and start their businesses, which is great. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So the pizza company, how long did you work on it? And then what happened from there? How did you come up with the idea for Thinks? The restaurants I still have were on our 18th year, but I ran them myself for like nine years, but they're still around today. So I was like in my restaurant day in, day out, 14 hours a day, seven days a week, like a psycho. And just working till I dropped, you know, and I learned so much about people and, you know, like hangry people and like stuff that's out of your control. Like also, like I would just stand outside my restaurant for years and hand out little pieces of pizza, just little bites. So get people in the door because it's like alternative pizza that people were still like, huh, like, what is this? And so I'd just be like, I would kind of A-B test like headlines, like right standing there. I'd be like, healthy pizza, no one would stop. And I would say gluten-free pizza, like no one would stop. And then I would say like, yummy pizza. <laughs> and then people would stop and then they would try it. And as they're taking a bite, be like, mm, I'd say, did you know this is like healthy and gluten-free and farm to table and local and hormone-free? And like, I would educate them like as they're like eating it. And they're like, wow, really? I would think it, that stuff would taste like cardboard. Like I didn't even... So then they would take a menu and then eventually like more menus would be handed out and more people would be interested. But I feel like I really learned about A-B testing headlines just by standing outside my restaurant and handing out pizzas for hours and hours for years and years and just doing that day in, day out. Yeah. And so come from there, you know, ran the restaurants for nine years. Didn't do a very good job because I was not a restaurateur. Like I was just in over my head, like trying to figure it out and just, you know, we survived. And the fact that we've been around for 18 years today, like is, and we've, so like what happened seven years in, eight years in 2005 to 2013. Yeah. So eight years in, so I ran them for eight years until I brought in Waleed, who's like, thank God, who's my current partner to this day. And I brought in my, my partner, who's like a restaurateur. <laughs> and, and when he took over the operations of the restaurant, our numbers doubled in the first week and our numbers tripled in the first month. And I was just like, holy shit, like what a horrific and important lesson for me to learn instead of running my own rest ragged, killing myself for eight years, trying to figure out how to run operations, which I wasn't great at, bringing in someone who's really good at the thing they're good at and giving me space to focus on the thing that I'm really good at was just such an epiphany for me because all of a sudden I got put in the role that I love doing 
and not doing the things that I didn't, I was not good at or necessarily loved doing. And it changed the course of our business. And, you know, it's been thriving ever since. So you know, I got to focus on the design and the aesthetic and the vibe and the store and, the, you know, all that stuff. And, and he really got to focus on the actual business itself, which was huge. And so now when I, you know, really built things in Tushy, although things was still a lot of learnings there with Tushy concurrently, you know, I have a CEO, a COO, a whole executive level team who runs the business. And at my new company as well, I have a whole executive team as well that runs the company, which is like game changing. But then because Waleed came in and took over the restaurants, I got to really focus on the next business, which was Thinks. And that was born out of family barbecue. You know, my sister and I were at my family barbecue in 2005, actually, the same same year I opened the restaurant. So we were defending our three-legged race championship title at our family barbecue. And in the middle of the race, my sister started her period. And she and I still tied to each other, like ran up the stairs because blood was like coming down like the bathing suit bottoms. And as we were running up the stairs, and then she took off her bathing suit bottoms and was washing them out into the sink. And we were both there, you know. That's when the idea hit. Like, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing to create a pair of underwear that didn't leak that didn't stain, that didn't, that, that absorbed blood, like exactly during important times, like the three-legged race. And then talking about the sister and she's a surgeon and she's like, oh yeah, all of her underwear had like brown stains on them because we're like, why? And she's like, yeah, in the middle of an operation, you can't just be like face, I'm going to go and change my tampon and I'll be right back. Like you're in a 12 hour operation. You can't stop, you know? And if you're in a meeting or the number of like ballet dancers and artists and theater people who are like, you can't just stop a show to change your tampon or like you're stuck in traffic. You're on a first date. You're about to present something. You're in any situation as a woman, like you can't put a pause and go change your tampon and you just leak and bleed everywhere. And it's such a pain in the ass. So imagine if you had a backup that supported you and that took care of you and that, you know, felt really amazing. And that's the idea came and Obviously, we tabled it for a while because I just opened the restaurants. And so finally, when Waleed came in and I was like not in over my head in 2010, went to India and talked about it again with my sister and our dearest friend at the time, Antonia, and the three of us um, started working on it in 2011. And then we spent four years developing the underwear and then launched it in 2014, the year after I, I stepped down as operations of my restaurants. And so then thinks, you know, was a humongous behemoth of a business to launch and grow as well and you know talking about periods didn't realize how much the taboo element of a woman's period came into play of how to talk about a period how to market a product that had to do with something taboo and how to get people to really really engage with something that they feel a lot of shame and discomfort around and so I really had developed kind of a thesis around how to change culture kind of through the restaurants and leading into thinks, you know, is like really developing a best-in-class product, number one, having a really, really artful considered design as a second piece, so that when you're talking about something weird, like a woman's period, but if your first thing that you're saying is, wow, that's beautiful art, oh my God, they're talking about periods, the first thing you said was that's beautiful, it allows you to kind of lean in a bit more and actually open yourself up to having a conversation about it. And then the third piece is, you know, really, really talking about this idea, like you're texting your best friend in a very accessible, relatable way, because if you're too heady, too clinical, too medical, too academic, it's just too much. It's just too much for someone to get on top of trying to like break a stigma on top of talking about, you know, it just, it was a lot. So, you know, meet people where they are, make it artful and make sure the product is excellent. That, you know, has been a thesis that has run through a through line 
with all of my businesses and to date as well. So yeah, so things really blew up in 2015 after we had a couple of big viral moments when the MTA banned our ads from Subway and we basically said, if you ban our ads, we'll go to press because like, how dare you say that a woman's period cannot be uttered in a subway? That's crazy, you know? And so we basically went to press and the story went viral and really put us on the map that just the conversation or women's period being taboo and how we, innovation was so stagnant because of it. And so how things was such an innovation in breaking the taboo on top of creating it, being an innovative product in and of itself. And so sort of, you know, it was my first, Thinks was my first hockey stick growth company. It was the first company that went from zero to $50 million in two years, you know, and it was just like, holy shit. It was like, we were on a tear and I, you know, just never done this before. And, you know, people have such expectations of like the founders and CEOs and leaders of like, as though you've done this before over and over again, it's like, I'm running my pizza shop. And next thing you know, I'm running a $50 million company. Like, give me a sec. Right. Give me a break. Give me a second to figure this out. Yeah. And people just want to see people fail. Like people want to see people who are doing good things and just do anything that's of value and noteworthy fail. And I, I learned that in a very, very deep way, building things, you know, and, and trying to change culture. And also, you know, when you're building a company, you have to make tough decisions and you have to make tough calls. And sometimes those tough calls are met with, out of context hyperbole and lots and lots of things you know followed that and that was a really really hard lesson that I learned as well and also you know again like similar to my restaurants when I was in over my head I finally brought in my um, partner who really shifted things I think with things as well like it was such a big job to be the CEO. And I, at that time I developed a hyperthyroid condition. I was pooping like eight times a day at heart pop. It was just like, it was so like my pee breaks were scheduled. It was like such an intense time for me. And my body was just like fritzing out. And so that's when I had to like, just like take a pause. I got a leadership and life coach. I started working with Dr. Mark Hyman to like work on my system. I started doing all kinds of different you know, things to regulate my system. Like I started, you know, real doing meditation practice and trying to really regulate myself because it was just like, people don't really understand like what it takes to start something and build something and how much pressure, you know, is involved and how, when there's a lot of pressure and not a lot of sleep and a lot of like, like, holy shit, like I'm on a rocket ship energy or not, or even just when you're trying to figure out how to pay, make payroll, like that's, a, a lot to manage. And so because of that and not having any grace, you know, and you have to be absolutely perfect at all times. Like it's, I challenge everyone to try and do that and, and be at a hundred percent, like loving level headed at all times, you know, energetics, you know, it's difficult. So I think until you really live it, it's really, really difficult to imagine it in the same way it was impossible to imagine nine 11, unless you've lived it. You know, it's like you can't imagine it unless you've lived through it. And so it was an incredible time. And then, you know, th there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened there. I had to let some people go and all this, you know, crazy stuff ensued. People said some crazy shit about yeah. me. I have no idea. There are some the crazy and allegations that were said against you and, and stuff like that. I mean, that's so hard when you have employees, but I'm 
I'm just curious, you know, how did it make you feel? How did you deal with all of this stuff? It's like so hard to build a company. And like you said, it's so stressful. And I think it's one of the most underrated things about building a business. It's so, so glamorized to build a company. First of all, it was so surprising for me and for executive team to even get to like receive these allegations against me. It was just like a wild, wild, weird. I was pregnant with my son, happily married. Like it was just a wild, weird. When you let people go, you know, oftentimes things get taken out of context. And when things get taken out of context, people just want to, again, like I said, people want to see you fail. Our company has been written a really positive light for a really long time at that point. And so to have this juicy takedown piece was like really too much to not take on. And so it was really sad. It was a really sad time to see how toxic, you know, the media culture can be and without actually understanding like what's true and what's not. And even asking me, is it true or not? And at the time, I was so scared of having a miscarriage. I was so scared about hurting my baby that I kind of just like, you know what, like, I'm just gonna step out and go to court quietly against, you know, the crazy things that were said. And and of course, over the next few years, I, you know, won in every court, I was all thrown out, it was proven to be complete nonsense and not true. And yet, yeah, people want to believe what they want to believe. And so for me, like what I decided to do was like, you know, when they go low, we go high, like we just stay high and we keep putting our heads down and keep working. And at the end of the day, people remember what you work and if they want to just be toxic. And because there's this syndrome called the tall poppy syndrome, where I don't know if you've heard of it, where it's like, there's people want the poppies to all stay the same. And if any ones that are outliers, they want to cut them down, you know? And so rather than, rather than aspire to be that, they want to cut them down. And so I definitely learned that lesson. Of course, I learned so many lessons about being a leader and, you know, how to soften during challenging times and how not to put so much on my plate where I'm like, I have nothing left in my tank, where it's like anything more is too much. So I definitely learned to put a leadership team in place, to put more people in executive managing roles in place. Like I made those mistakes a hundred percent. Like, was I in over my head in a lot of different ways? hundred percent. But you know, to be expected to any startup that goes from zero to 50 million in revenue in two years, you know? And so I've learned a lot in that way. And I also learned that how deeply into justice I am. It's like, okay, like I'm not going to be, you know, like a, he said, she said, salacious, you know, be part of that storyline, but I will, you know, get justice in a way that's true for me, which is through the legal system. And so I did. And so that was really powerful for me when we won that and it was all thrown out and it was sort of like okay like moving forward let's move it's like onward and then starting to was a huge huge big big thing like we did it again we've built another nine bigger business we've done you know we've sold over a million and a half units we've done over 150 million in revenue i mean it's it's really really exciting but again this time i did it in a way that i felt was a lot more <laughs> supportive of my nervous system bringing in amazing leadership bringing in a full leadership team executives and doing what I do best, which is mostly the creative, the brand, and the oh, vision. If someone is a visionary such as yourself, where it's probably best if they maybe bring in these experts for these leadership roles, at what stage of the company do you think it's best to do that? I mean, I've 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 now learned to kind of bring them in a little earlier. <laughs> you actually hire less people and smarter people that can do like three people's jobs because they have the, the experience. So I prefer tiny and mighty over like so many people that can do, you know, like, like one job each. It's like, let's bring the senior person, let's pay them more, let's incentivize them. 
and let's get them to do like this task at the startup stage. And then as we grow, let's bring in more people. But I like the idea of starting with a lot more experience today than I did at my last company. It was like all newbies, you know, and amazing. And they all did great. And we definitely, like, I was a bit too naive to think that like, I can handle this. Like I, I definitely needed more senior leadership to handle, handle or handle a bigger team. So why a bidet? And I love, I mean, the brand, it's like, it's just hilarious. I was just, I know when you open it up, there's, I counted, there's 30 different ways that you describe the bidet. Hilarious. You have like the tushy bidet. Um, and there's so many, what is it? There was a really good one. The butthole car wash, AKA your rootin' tootin' toilet pal. I mean, like it goes on and on. It's hilarious. And I couldn't believe there's 30. I was like, wow, that's a lot of like space and so many words, but it's really, I can tell for the brand, it's so important to be having this kind of like vibe. You even have astrology in the, you know, little pamphlet of this number two shall pass, you know, all these little funny, approachable ways to make something that's very taboo fun. I feel like that's your thing. And uh, it's very apparent in this product, which is really, really cool. But why why the bidet? What made you come up with the idea? So first of all, being half Japanese, half Indian, grew up with them, obsessed with bidets, but always thought of them as like multi-thousand dollars plus plumbing, plus electrical, very unattainable, only for super rich people. Or if you go to Japan when they're already like pre-done, pre-electric set up. In there, but then like in 2014, when I developed that intense hyperthyroid condition where one of the byproducts of having a hyperthyroid condition, which I, by the way, healed myself in a couple of years, even when the doctor was like, take your thyroid out and do all this crazy stuff and take all this medicine. And I was like, nope, I started working with Mark Hyman. I started working on my gut, on my adrenals, on my system. I started doing coaching. I started doing meditation and I completely, completely healed myself in two years. During the period of the hyperthyroid condition, I was pooping like up to eight times a day. Think about it. Eight times a day. I'm not talking like little poops. Yeah, that's I'm a talking lot. like big poops. And I'm not kidding. It's not an exaggeration when I say eight times. I went down to 99 pounds. It felt like I was dying. Like actually, it was so scary. Um, and, and so when you're wiping and wiping and wiping, they're not clean poops. They were like messy poops. And like, you know, so I would wipe and wipe and wipe. And I would just eventually had a chapped butt because I was peeing all pooping all the time. And so eventually I had to jump in the shower and like wash myself. Like, like, ugh, like it was so like raw that I was like, Oh my God. So I'd jump in the shower and like wash my butt gingerly. And it was like so painful. And then finally my husband, Andrew at the time, he basically was like, like surprised me on Valentine's day and installed this like bidet in my toilet. And he was like, this will, I think help soothe so romantic. you. Totally amazing. And it changed my life. Actually. It was, it was like game changing for my existed in, in Asia, but kind of remote and ugly and not well-made and not well-designed. And I'm like, I'm going to make the best in class version of a bidet attachment, bring it to America. And I know that there's like 50, 60 million people who have chronic UTIs, hemorrhoids, bacterial vaginosis, fissures, itching, like GI issues, like all the different types of things. And people are sustainably fo sustainability focused who hate killing 15 million trees a year, which toilet paper does. It kills 15 million trees per year. You know, like people who have, if you're pregnant, when I was pregnant, super, I had a hemorrhoid that was so painful. And, you know, and so like to just soothe it, 
that part of your body needs to be taken care of, not take dry paper and just like smear poop around and just wipe and wipe. It's a horrible experience and it's not clean. It's not good for the planet. It's not good for your wallet. You're spending thousands of dollars in your lifetime. And so it was just like such a like ding, ding, ding moment again for me where I'm like, wow, the Thinks product changed my life. Tushy changed my, like this a bidet changed my experience of like going to the bathroom, which was like a thing you do every day. If you're lucky, eight times is too much, but if you do it once or twice, like that's like good system. Yeah. So basically it was like a process of developing the product, creating it, making it feel like an iPhone. So the shape of it is like familiar shape. Our copy again is accessible. If you go to hellotoshi.com, our website's beautiful. Like again, same kind of theme, thematics of like, how do you change culture? Best in class product, considered artful design and accessible, relatable language that works. And so far it's worked again. And we've done it with Tushy. You know, we only had a million and a half people's lives changed <laughs> and we want that to be, you know, a lot more. So, so how long have you had the business Tushy and where are things going next? Like, what do you see coming next for the brand? And then final question is what advice can you give to entrepreneurs that are tuning in, aspiring to a business, maybe their first one, maybe their second one, or maybe they're in the trenches right now? I started the company in 2014, but I really took over the business in 2017 after I stepped down from things, that whole thing. And I took a little bit of time to have my baby, but then I brought in a CEO for Tushy from Amazon. I'm my CEO and co-founder is awesome. Justin, he's a lawyer by trade, KPMG lawyer, like super, super smart. And, you know, we love lawyers for partners because <laughs> they look at all the fine print. So he's super, super, they're both thoughtful, thorough, good family men. And it's just like, I'm so grateful for them where are we going? Like we want to really own the American bathroom. We want to be the bidet brand of America. We believe we can, there's 300 million, you know, butts to clean. And we think that it's truly the most game changing thing you can do for yourself. Actually in 10 minutes, it takes 10 minutes to install. There's no plumbing or electrical required. It's not pulling water from your bowl or your tank. It's from the wall, the same water you brush your teeth with. So it's like, it takes 10 minutes. Like I said, like I can't even hang a painting and I can install my tushy. It's so easy. It comes with a splitter and a hose and everything comes in the box. It's super easy. So really proud of it. Really excited about it. Really excited about the shifting culture element of it as well. We've saved to date 5 million plus trees. We funded the build out of clean toilets for 60,000 families in India. We funded, you know, so many resoiling and reforestry projects down in South America you know, Thinks has helped over a million girls, mil well over a million girls go back to school with period products. So like my products are all, you know, have a deep give back, which I'm deeply proud of as well. What's next for me is I have this new company that's kind of looking at mushrooms and to solve the gold plastic crisis, but that's, that's next for another time. Yeah. We'll have to have a whole episode on, on that one when you want to talk sure, about it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 But final advice for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Advice for entrepreneurs. You know, I, I give this advice often to entrepreneurs because oftentimes entrepreneurs become so isolated in what they're doing. Well, you know, it's like, I'm just focusing on the thing I'm working on. It becomes so selfish and so ego driven and so me, me, me focused that you forget about your friends and you forget about spending time with your family and your loved ones and you just isolate. And then all of a sudden when shit hits the fan, you feel so alone, you know? And so like, I've always, always I'm being a twin, like I was born in community in the womb and so I've always known the importance of community and how cultivating your friendships mean a lot. And I've always been a community builder, community organizer, organized parties, planned a birthday parties, like a thing, you know, with our friends. And like, we care so much about gathering because like, even on days when I'm exhausted, I'm working a huge day. If my friend's having a birthday party or a friend's doing something, I show up and I'm there and we feel grateful that we get to spend time together and be 
in community together. And I think the showing upness when shit hits the fan, you get like the amount of love I received when I went through my crazy think stuff was like some of the most beautiful experiences of my life. Like as much as I was going through the most horrific crazy how is this real fucking life experience i wasn't alone for a whole year i gave birth as well as friends come visit my baby but every day people would bring me food bring me song bring me stuff like constantly bringing me cheer it was one of the most beautiful displays of love that i've i've experienced even like before i had a deposition with you know for this crazy stuff i had friends come over the day before deposition with 20 crystals and like stuff like that and they like showered me with like put a whole shield of love around me the day before the deposition and left me with all these crystals that when I showed up for the deposition like I literally had a bag full of crystals and I literally put them in front of me at the deposition around me just to like protect a shield protect myself with love and even the woman who was like typing like deposition she was like I love crystals and I was like thanks <laughs> so yeah it was it was a wild moment and then like you know like when in the heat of the storm I had like 15 friends like come over with a boom box and flowers and they circled me and sang around me while I was in the middle holding the flowers crying. It was just like, you know, it was amazing. Like I felt so loved in that hard, 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 hard time. So I can't express the importance of showing up hard for your friends all the time. Cause at the end of the day, when all of this is said and done, like, what do you have is you have the people that you love and you love and that they love and, and yes, you have your creative things that you've put out in the world, but ultimately it's the relationships that Krakauer in his book Into the Wild, right? His last, last dying realization was life is meant to be shared, right? And so it was an incredible I think prioritize display. relationships is almost maybe a way to sum it up. And that's something I don't think we've had on the show as advice. And it's interesting because so many times with running a company and I mean, maybe a lot of entrepreneurs have experienced this, a lot of relationships are sacrificed in the process because you are so busy, because you are so, you're not present, you're working, you've got your head down basically, you know, and then your head pops up one day and you're like, where is everybody? Where'd they go? <laughs> it's like, well, that's what happens when you don't nurture those relationships. Totally. We had to have an intervention with one of our friends who went so far in isolation because he was so embarrassed or whatever, or felt so frustrated and stressed that he wasn't raising any money for his startup that he just like went isolated himself. And we ended up literally like having a, you know, an intervention where we like had a bunch of, we, had, we basically were like, just go over dinner. And then we had like a ton of people in the room being like, we love you. Like, you know, and so we just, we just, we just broke down and cried and we just showered him with so much love. And, and then like literally cut to like, a few weeks later, he sends us all a screenshot of his like bank account, his startup's bank account that had like $2 million in it or something that he'd raised the capital. But, you know, it was like, I think he had to get himself out of his funk to like confidence again. So yeah, like having strong bonds. And, like, yeah, I think it's confidence. normal to think that you can do it all yourself too, you know, or that it's your job too as the founder, right? Or as the leader, CEO or whatever. I mean, there's so much pressure. So much pressure. Yeah. It's also the juice of life, you know, it's like, can I put myself in these situations? And can I also self care at the same time? Like, how do I set it up for myself, where I am doing the things that I want to be doing? And I'm also taking care of myself at the same time. Like, that's the game. It's like, I'm still creating, I'm still doing all the things I want to do, but I'm just doing it very differently today. Prioritizing relationships, but also your health and yourself, right? We are not our companies. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Mickey. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for sharing your amazing story. 
Thanks for joining us. Yes. Awesome. Thanks, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.